0: Good morning. Please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. and He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, instructive word to our hearts and our souls and our minds. Father, we ask that we can get another glimpse of Jesus, our Savior, our High Priest. May we see clearly Him in this text for our sustenance, for our souls, for our perseverance, for our comfort, for our boldness before your throne of grace, to the glory of his holy name. Amen. Now, last week, in the whole passage, verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews 5, we saw that the main point is there in verse 9. He, Jesus, became the source. Of eternal salvation. To all who obey Him. And everything else around it in this large paragraph. He is telling us what it is that qualified Christ. To be the source. Of eternal salvation to individual persons who come and obey Him. And we saw last week that the first thing is because He is God, the Son. Today I have begotten you. And we saw secondly, because His priesthood is eternal, and without beginning, and it's everlasting without end, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And that brings us to this morning, the third, verses 7 to 9. What made him fit to be our high priest? It was that he learned obedience through his suffering. And lay down his life. Begin with verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from. Death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And now the author goes on to interpret what he just said in the next verse. He said, Let me unfold that. In other words, even though Jesus was a son. The Son of God, nevertheless, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Not only is Jesus qualified to be the source of eternal salvation because of His infinite, eternal worth as God the Son, and because of his eternal priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, but also because he learned obedience through what he suffered. In other words, as verse 9 says, And thus, being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation. He was qualified to die and as high priest to offer himself not just because of his eternal worth, not just because of his eternal priesthood, but also because of his being tried and tested And proved perfectly obedient in His human nature in suffering. Verse 8 says, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. I am very deliberately going slowly this morning. Okay. This does not mean he moved from disobedience into obedience. The author has made that clear back in chapter 4, verse 15. He, Jesus, as one of us now, true human being, he was tempted in all things. Oh, he suffered. Yet, without disobedience, sin. If he disobeyed God, the Father, he would have sinned. So, what he means here, this is, this is the best shot I have at it, is that Jesus, the eternal Son, before the incarnation, then was incarnated. It means he moved from being untested to being tested and proven utterly obedient. He is. as as the Scriptures tell us, the second Adam. The first Adam, the created being, Adam, failed the test. The Creator became one of His descendants, the second Adam, and passed the test as the perfectly obedient, sinless man. Son of God, High Priest. In other words, it means that Jesus moved from obeying always for all eternity, or in other words, in perfect submission to the Father, without, though, any suffering in that. He moved from that to obeying through and in the midst of terrible suffering. Or let me say it this way. He learned obedience in the sense that he experienced obedience in the context of his human nature, which is limited, and in the world of suffering. This makes him a suitable, a sympathetic, a relational high priest to all who are being saved by him. Because he learned from his own human experience what suffering is, and he proved his purity by taking that suffering all the way to the cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins into human death. The author, and the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, means for us believers to feel that, to grasp that, that the eternal Son was always obedient to the Father from all eternity, and then became one of us, so that the demonstration of that obedience was to be revealed by his being placed in the situation of true humanity. In a fallen world and terrible sufferings and trials that were so intense. In other words, how does he learn? Because The son who is without beginning never experienced that before his incarnation. And thus, that is the learning of that kind of obedience in the the fire of temptation, pain and suffering and limitation and torture and betrayal. Give an illustration. Now, picture numbers of years ago when all my kids are at least under 16. And I say, Look, I'm going to brag about my children. They're so obedient. And I sit them down at the table and I say, Watch this. Okay, children, go ahead now, eat your ice cream. And they all obediently eat their ice cream. But you wouldn't be terribly impressed with that. Now, is that real obedience? The answer is yes. They're obeying me. It's real obedience. Much like Christ, the Son, within the triune Godhead from all eternity, Was there any disobedience, any conflict between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in in any way? No, it was all ice cream. Every absolute perfect agreement of the Son with the Father, there's zero tension. It is in and of itself pure joy. ice cream. But if I were to then say to my children, now get up, clean your rooms, brush your teeth, and go to bed. If they obeyed then, you'd be much more impressed. Because why? Those tasks, unlike ice cream, are unpleasant. Commands, Uh, meaning in and of themselves, where the ice cream itself is the pleasant command. So, also the incarnation of Jesus, the human limitation, the horrible suffering, the the wrath bearing on the cross for sins all of those things were unpleasant, unwelcome test in and of themselves. But as Hebrews chapter 12 the writer will later tell us In verse two, he says of Jesus, For the ice cream, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering. He he endured The cross, not for the joy of the cross, but for the joy that the cross is producing, he endured and obeyed. There's no joy, there's no delight in being betrayed and spit on and slugged and hit and having the Father turn away from Him. But for this motive beyond it, for, for the glory of God, for the extension of that glory through salvation for all the joy that would flow out of the cross, he endured, obeyed the will of God perfectly. And this obedient love for God was shown to be deep and real, as our writer says, through what he suffered. So now then, next question. Was that easy? I mean, it's God the Son. Easy for Him to do this? Not according to verse 7. That's what it's there for. It said, it was prayed for earnestly begged for, cried out for, with tears. Jesus' life in the flesh and His suffering was no play-acting. It wasn't a fake test. Everything in the universe hung on that test. Flip back verse 15 of chapter 4 for a second. For we Christians do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. And unfolding that temptation, verse 7 of chapter 5 says, this is what, I I think they're connected. Here it is. is. This is the temptation throughout His life that it produces. Here it is. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To Him, His Father, who was able to save Him from death. And God answered. He was heard because of His reverence. Now, First, that phrase, in the days of His flesh... It refers to the days of Jesus' earthly mortal life. All the days of His pre-cross humanity, He was wrestling against temptation, praying, begging passionately with tears. But we can see verse 7, right, of those tears at its peak, right? But I don't think this is what he means. He doesn't just mean Garden of Gethsemane. But you see it at its peak there the night before his death where he was wrestling with the imminent, very, very, very close now reality of the wrath of God. Being the substitute, taking our sins upon himself. And you can feel it in his human soul. Father, if there's any other way we can get to this goal, please don't don't have me do this. It's very unwelcome. In and of itself. Nevertheless, if there's no other way, your will be done. His intense struggling in the garden was not just over the thought of physical death, but it was the struggling that thought of being separated, whatever that meant in his human nature, and his soul, from the Father in that death, as he was the substitute. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death now the four gospels they show Jesus had a very intense prayer life but, but none of them other than the garden of Gethsemane right there in general they don't word it the way this author words it with loud cries in tears so, I, mean, I think that most likely he got that from one or a few of Jesus' apostles. One thing that just rings in those words is that even though Jesus was fully God, and that the cross was central to God's predetermined plan. Nevertheless, the actual carrying out of that plan was not easy. Think about the depths that the eternal second person of the Trinity took by his dissension down the infinite staircase in becoming a human being. And in his suffering, and in Gethsemane, and on the cross, that was more intense than any other human being could possibly imagine. In comparison. Even of those. Who were slowly tortured. To death. Why? Because we don't know. What it's like to be. The eternal. Son. In eternal. Communion. With the father. Until that horrendous. Hour. When he cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 7 goes on to tell us that Jesus prayed, quote, to him who was able to save him from death. he was heard because of his reverence. Okay. Was, does that mean Jesus was praying, please don't let me die? Deliver me from physical death? Is this author telling us that was the goal of Jesus' praying throughout His life in the days of His flesh? I think the answer is obviously no. From this author and every other author, we know Jesus was quite aware of His purpose in coming in order to die. He continued to teach His disciples that that's what He's doing. The Son of Man, that means I have come into the world to give my life as a ransom for many. No one takes my life. I lay it down in death. On that last journey to Jerusalem, He continually... Tried to drill it into their minds, we're going to Jerusalem in order that I will be killed. Okay. So what's what's going on here then? Because the context says also this. He was heard. And I don't think that means... Well, the father heard him and then said, no, in this case. I think the way the writer uses that, what he means is his prayers were answered. God gave him what he was asking for. Jesus was asking to be sustained through agony and the bearing. be Brought through death. This is what I think he means. The only one's going to save me from the death that I'm destined to die through resurrection. And his complete restoration with the Father at his right hand. And verse 8 describes the effect of that. Answered prayer. What was the effect of that being Jesus' whole life? He learned obedience. That's the effect. He was praying for the sustaining power to persevere in obedience to the end. And when you read the Gospel of John, and he constantly is telling Disciples and non disciples. I only do what the Father has commanded. It is His will that I endeavor to do. That is directly connected to His earnest pleading in private. And where's Jesus? We just woke up. He's been over there for a couple hours in the woods already. It's connected. So in His praying, Jesus knew that there was a death that was much worse than physical death. Physical death is bad enough. And He had this human desire rise up Right? and ask, is there any other way, Father? But what would have been worse is the death of, I don't care if there's any other way. I'm abandoning the plan. And that's worse than physical death. Imperfection. Sin. Sin come into him. Unbelief, disobedience to the Father. Okay, We can talk about could have he ever sinned, and that's a great discussion, and all of that. But that's not, at this point, Look, my answer is he could not. Does that mean he did not need to pray? It doesn't mean that at all. That was the burden and the great threat. And that's why temptation for him was temptation. So he prayed all his life against that. And he was heard by the Father. His prayers were answered. So instead of ever caving in, our text says he learned by experience. He learned Obedience from, through the cauldron of fire melting down the gold and making sure there's no impurities in there at all. He was heard because of his reverence. Just briefly, uh, reverence. Okay. New American Standard Bible translates it because of his piety. NIV is reverent submission, New King James godly fear. it, it, it is it is the word ulebeas, which means something like just because of his humble submission, his reverent, reverent devotion. And in the context, it is clearly to the Father. And so the author sums up the earthly journey of Jesus which resulted in his learning obedience through the the terrible sufferings of his life. And he says it resulted in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Literally, in the Greek, having, having been made perfect, as we have seen, it does not mean that Jesus was imperfect and then He became perfect or that He was flawed or sinful and then somehow became perfected after that. But it means that His experience of obediently, Suffering, even all the way to and through death, is what qualified him to be the great high priest. The Lamb of God, spotless one, proven to you all. Remember how the writer put this? Flip back to chapter 2 for a moment. In chapter 2, verse 10, the writer already told us this. For it was fitting that He, that is, that is God, it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, saving those who are His, to get the connection again, it was fitting that God, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We could say it this way. Just as the erotic and Levitical priesthood, they had to be consecrated for their jobs, so Jesus also had to be consecrated. He had to be perfectly fit be high priest. And being made perfect through his obedient suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. He's perfectly fit, in other words, for what? To fulfill Hebrews chapter 10. Turn there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 to 7. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats impossible for that blood to take away sins. And consequently or as a result of that, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now he quotes Psalm 40. Here's Jesus's voice to the Father, sacrifices and offerings You have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. He has, because it's as if the Father is saying to the Son, You are to be the Lamb of God as a blood sacrifice for sins. And he goes on in verse 6, Jesus' voice, in burnt offerings, Father, in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. No pleasure? Obviously, in the context, what He means is, because all of those animals, in their death, in their blood drained out on the altar, could not take away our sins. And He goes on then. Then I said, Behold, hear the obedience. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus was totally sold out. To do the will of the Father all the way to and through a Roman cross. As a high priest, offering up his own human life to a bloody death. This is the gospel. And thus he became, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to every person who would obey him. That's why you open up the New Testament and their message was God commands All people everywhere to repent and believe and obey the gospel. Jesus is the only source of eternal salvation from God's wrath. Only source of salvation from the penalty of our sins. There is no other source, no other go-between, no other mediator, no other priest for any human being to get to God on good terms. Remember Peter in the first sermon on the day of Pentecost? He cried out in answer to their question. There's no salvation in Anyone else. For there is no other name under heaven given among humanity by which we must be saved. And the Apostle Paul soberly wrote in Second Thessalonians chapter one. There's a day in the future when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when Jesus comes on that day in order to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And That's why the cry of true Christianity is believe. Cling to Him because He and He only is the one who has become the source of eternal salvation for your souls. So let me close over 10 minutes with five. I can say applications or take-homes, but don't be confused about these. These are not five things. Now go home and do this. These are five theological truths which are utterly practical and will cause the doing of whatever the thises are when we grasp them. So first is this. Know it. Our sins, make it personal, your sins are so hideous that God required nothing less than the sacrificial bloody death of His own eternal perfect sinless Son in true humanity as the only solution and therefore we better always as Christians and as churches be very careful to never think that some added on human solution would be also helpful to it That salvation Any system of salvation that adds works to the proclamation of Christ's sacrifice. And says, you have to have these added works. They're a necessary condition for your salvation from your sins. That is a direct attack on the substitutionary sacrifice and atonement of Jesus. I can't convince you just by those simple words. Just read Paul in the book of Galatians. They didn't deny Jesus' death or resurrection. But they added to the people, you must add something else besides your faith in that. And that destroys the gospel. Secondly, if God's wrath against sin is so terrible, then we need to learn obedience. The obedience of fleeing to the cross for refuge on a daily basis as Christians. And be deeply grateful for Jesus as the Lamb. Of God, slain for us. Or, in other words, meditate with me on Arthur Arthur Pink's words, first half of the 20th century theologian. Pink writes Into what infinite depths of humiliation did the Son of God descend? How unspeakably dreadful was his anguish. What a hideous thing sin must be if such a sacrifice was required for its atonement. How real and terrible a thing is the wrath of God. What love moved him to suffer so on our behalf? What must be the portion of those who despise and reject such a savior? So let us go on being grateful day by day. Third, the writer to the Hebrews his point is that Jesus is our perfect great high priest in that his his prayers urgent ongoing prayer life and thus with that his obedience through temptations and sufferings show clearly to us that he can relate to us. God the Son, we pray to Him. He's not afar off in the sky, unrelatable, nothing to do with human nature, but only God nature. Well, you know, it's God, so. He can relate. So so as He prayed to rely upon the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit throughout His life in the flesh, so also we are to pray earnestly through Him. Because prayer and the obedience of faith with this book of Hebrews is constantly about their hand in glove. Prayer empowers empowers the work of the Spirit in obedience of faith. Fourth, God's love for us does not mean He does not take us to and into and through suffering. God the Father loved the Son. And yet the cross was His God-ordained destiny. He loves His children. And He brings His children through many sufferings. Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. And you think about it, think about your life, if you've been a Christian long enough. Two sentences, contemplate them from John Piper. No one ever said that they learned their deepest lessons of life or had their sweetest encounters with God on the sunny day. People go deep with God when the drought comes. They go into the depths, don't we? Of loud cries, in tears. You don't even, you're not even trying to pray. You just find yourself doing it. And so that leads to the final one. It's connected to our obedience through suffering. And that is this feeling mm. deep emotions during trials is not wrong. But we must always evaluate them. And submit our emotions and feelings to the will of God, if they are out of the will of God. There's an old saying that says, look, emotions are neither right nor wrong, they just are. There's actually a lot of truth in that statement. They're pointers. Where's that coming from? What am I not in touch with? Okay. But it can also be taken in a way that is in horrible error. See, the truth of that statement is: yes, don't be a person who denies what you actually feel. Particularly to yourself. Know it. Help me be in touch with. And why? And should I continue to feel this way? Be in touch with the experience of your emotions. So they're good and fine because there are appropriate emotions to feel of sadness and of crying and of happiness or grief. But there's also sinful emotions. So so grief, (coughs) you're supposed to feel when there's loss. Loss even though theologically you know God was in control, must be His will in some hidden sense, that reality should not cause you to say, therefore I have a stiff upper lip. That's just wrong. These are two different levels you should feel. And grief is utterly appropriate in loss. But what if that grief turns to anger at God over the loss and thus bitter at God? But does it doesn't matter, you're just being on No, you should be honest with your feelings. You should pray those feelings, you should talk to God about them. But don't think, I feel it, I'm angry at God, therefore that's okay, because that is sinful. That's implicating God as sinning against you. Does that make sense? All right, let me close here. Here's the thing throughout the suffering of this life then. Even if God strips us of everything as he did Job, we should through our deep pain and tears say with Job, in the end, the Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Connected now to our passage. Who has provided for me eternal forgiveness. Unending joy in His presence. Through the brutal sacrifice of His Son. Jesus has provided this through the brutal sacrifice of Himself on the altar of the cross. Oh, what a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for revealing Your Son to us in Holy Scripture. Aspects of His life and ministry to us but also by the work of your Holy Spirit in us giving us eyes to see you are good oh may your son be lifted up in your people here at sovereign grace and throughout your congregations in this world in these times to the glory of his holy name let us stand and let us sing you came from heaven's throne, acquitted acquainted with our sorrows the Lamb of God in my place your blood poured out my sin erase